Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Marked Safe. Tales of your very favorite and most beloved disasters. On Mark Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly and stay safe. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Mark Safe. Melanie. Hey, buddy. I'm so excited about this episode. <laughs> I know. I'm super excited about it, too. I've had too much fun researching this, and I'm ready to tell you a lot of stuff. But first, we have some other business okay. and information to attend to. Um, so, you know, our listener, Anne, who started as a listener and has become a friend at this point. Yes, she's the best. Yes, she's she the is. Best. Um, she... I, th- I don't know if we've talked about her before. She's active in the group, so I think a lot of you may know her story. But if you don't, um, she lost her beloved husband, Nick, in 2019. And she gets the whole grief blender thing right. <laughs> a lot. Um, and she had commented, gosh, I don't even know when. It's been months now. Um, something in Horrible Ghouls about something called the Force Joy Project. And I was just kind of like, well... I, I mean, she gets what we're about and she likes it. And I think that she is a very cool person who knows a lot of stuff. So maybe this is interesting. Let me look into this. So I fell down this rabbit hole about the Force Joy Project. And it is cool as shit, actually. <laughs> um, basically, it is a community with a very uh, grief blendery vibe that is there and ready to get messy in grief and be honest and vulnerable and complicated and blendery. And um, they have a paid subscription that you can get that gives you access to more resources. And I'm feeling like that, like a three month subscription to that could be an amazing gift. If you know somebody who loses somebody Um, I am, I have been for a long time and I will continue to be die hard about the, the thing you want to send is a DoorDash card kind right, of thing. Right, right. Um, but, you know, if you want to take it to the next level, this may be for you. If you need something like that, this may be for you. So I looked into it myself, but obviously Anne has more experience with the project. So I reached out to her and asked if she would like to share, um, you know, like a couple paragraphs or an audio clip or something talking to us about it since she is more qualified to speak on that than I am. And she so graciously obliged. So we have some audio from Anne to introduce that project for anyone who could benefit. Most blenders, grief ones included, have different buttons. Liquify, puree, chop, grind, etc. If you've experienced grief, you've probably felt like someone hit all of these buttons at once. There is a separate button, though, called Pulse. KitchenAid.com says that this button allows you to have precise control over the duration and frequency of blending. You have to manually push this button to make it work. Dana The founder of the Forced Joy Project might have a better analogy than this, but I feel like this support and resource community would be the pulse button on a grief blender. You have to manually put yourself into situations where joy is possible, whether it's a cuddle pile with a loved pet, watching your favorite show for the 70th time, or being in the perfect spot for a sunset. I still remember the first time I felt joy after my husband died. I was at a holiday party with a friend and her family. There were live reindeer walking down the street, and my heart felt so different than it had before. I immediately felt guilty because it had only been a month, but three and a half years out has reduced the guilt. One of the things that I appreciate about the Forced Joy Project is that it's not about toxic positivity. It's about empowerment and hope. It's about feeling like you're in the mud green collared shit of a grief smoothie and being surprised when that second sip doesn't taste like ass as dana says life is tough let's force some joy and is the best <laughs> i know <laughs> holy shit i know i love her to pieces what a great way to describe it i know 
And she, she has spoken so vulnerably and eloquently on grief and the loss of Nick that I felt like she was the one to reach out to and she absolutely was. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there at the top of the show for anyone who um, might need it or for anything that you may want to tuck away in your pocket in case you have someone who has lost a loved one and you're like, what the fuck do I do for them? Maybe a forced joy subscription for a while. Um, that could be an idea. Oh my God. I definitely want to check into that because I'm still blendering it up yes. with my baby bro. And you know me. I, yes, indeed. I just, I just, uh, serve you my weird ass gross smoothies all the time. I probably <laughs> should look into some other avenues. Uh, no, I'm good with that avenue. But if you want an additional avenue, not instead of just in addition to, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, she sent that a few weeks ago, and I just kind of all around didn't have my shit together, but also it feels timely right now. Um, Mother's Day threw me headfirst into the grief blender. Yeah. Um, between my son and my grandmother and just, you know, my my babies that I don't have anymore, foster kids, that kind of stuff. Um, dropped my ass where I didn't hit every button at once. <laughs> right. And, uh, I'm glad it's over. I don't want to see another fucking word about it in my newsfeed. If you want to talk about your Mother's Day and disaster relief, I will allow it. But that's it. After that, I'm done for the year. Um, so it, it felt timely uh, for this episode. This episode has nothing to do with Mother's Day, but it just felt like the right time to uh, pull that out and get that out there. So thank you so much, Anne. We appreciate thank you, you. Yeah. all the time. Well, should we uh, jump into a distraction, I guess? The, uh, sure. The bracket. I'm really excited for you to get pissed <laughs> off today. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, God. You had massive hot takes. About, oh, 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 oh. does this include? It includes it. I haven't looked. I completely fucking forgot. <laughs> You're going to break some brackets, some hearts. I love it. I'm going to punch a hole in a wall thinking about that song. All right, what's my fucking nemesis up against? So today is Full House versus Step by Step. I wonder which people would think was my nemesis if they didn't know, which they don't, but you know. I know. Okay, now hold on. I actually, Step by Step is one of the few ones on there that I don't know. It's going to win, but I feel like I should at least hear it just to say well, I did. Well, to clarify, win today. Oh, yeah. It's not going to win the whole one. I've never even heard it. Okay, hold Okay, on. but wait a minute. What? Before you start, I need you to remember that I have paired these perfectly this time. So are you telling me this is also a piece of shit song that's going to make me punch a hole in the wall? I love you. Listen to it. Oh, fuck me. Ugh, do I have to listen to the whole thing? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel like you need to leave that. Okay. <laughs> um. Okay, well, I will award it some points for the fact that it involves the actual, like, a roller coaster. Yes, that's cool. And some screaming. Uh, yeah, I, I'll allow it. Um. I can respect that. Honestly, did you like my pairing? I do, but I don't think anything could have not beat Full House. I I don't like. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I mean, I hate Susu Studio, and I still think that might have even fucking yeah, that would have beat Full House. Can we unpack it? Why do you hate it so much? Have I told you privately? I don't remember. No. Okay. <laughs> um, it's actually kind of a bummer of a story, but that's okay. Um, so. When I was a kid, my mom was a single mom, did an amazing job at that. Um, but she worked nights, which as a single mom now, holy shit, I get that completely. If you can work nights and sleep, you know, while your kid's in school and you have reliable childcare overnight, that's the fucking arrangement right there. Um, so that was genius, but I was a clingy ass child and had to stay home with a grandmother, not the one who just died, different grandmother, who was not very nice, not very hands-on, to put it mildly. Um, did not like it. I mean, actually, she 
I mean, she, honestly, she needed care herself. It was kind of the blind leading the blind there. So basically, once mom left around evening, like sunset, I was on my own for the night and totally safe, but just kind of fucking right. lonely. Um, and she left for work right as the Full House theme song was on and right at sunset. And I hate sunsets and saxophones and the full house theme song now it gives me this deep aching melancholy that i cannot deal with (laughs) i oh my god so it's actually more sad than mad but like i will fucking break a phone to shut that off at this point well it's over they're out and you don't have to worry about it ever again yeah trust me i did not listen to it in preparation for this um i don't need to i already know (laughs) I have nothing to say to that song. Um, the step-by-step one, uh, the vast majority of this bracket I'm actually familiar with show-wise, which is odd and rare for me. But that one, I don't think I've ever watched that show, and I don't think I've ever heard that theme song. But A, it's up against the worst song in the universe, and B, it's got roller coasters in it. So, I mean, that's that's a solid win. It's kind of on brand for us, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's got, like, a POV video in the... In the um, actual you know the video part of the theme song it like you're on a roller coaster and it shows the little things in the middle and you're going over the it's a whole thing and i'm i'm not mad at that. <laughs> have you watched the video lately yeah i like i said i went through and i re-listened to everything so i could pair them up perfectly yeah i mean it's it's kind of a baller opening montage for a 80s 90s era theme song so it's fine um, I feel comfortable advancing it, but I don't care. I mean, it could have been a song sung by Satan himself, and it still would have beat Full House. <laughs> There's no words for how much I love that song. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> I love that you hate it. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, what it does to my brain is the opposite of dopamine. Mm. It's it's uh, like musical depression, sort of. Musical yeah. depression. Musical depression. I like it. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) But I do like my episode. (laughs) What you got this week? So you know what I've got. I do Um, know what you got. You do, but the people don't. And I am excited. Um, I will tell you now, this is going to be a two-parter. I have just decided that racing month this month is going to be racing start to finish for my episodes. And I get three in May. (laughs) Um. So I will be doing part one of a two-part compilation on IndyCar disasters and deaths and accidents and incidents. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we'll we'll start start racing month strong with Dan Weldon. Then we'll have part one, part two. So here we go with part one. Buckle the fuck up. Put on your fireproof racing suit. Get in a car with a roll cage. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm bummed. Make sure there is adequate ventilation. There's a lot of lessons to be learned in this episode. (laughs) All right. So we are going to do this one a little bit differently than normal for a couple reasons. Um, I did this once with saturation diving and scuba diving where I followed up the second while the terminology from the first was still fresh in everybody's mind. Um, Technically, sat diving and scuba diving, two completely different topics, but there's a whole lot of you know, scientific stuff that applies to both. Um, so I figure, well, we've still got, you know, laps and chassis and pack racing and all this shit in our heads. Let's, let's use it. So we're going to come back to that. Um, there are a lot of stories to be told on this subject by nature. A lot of them can be repetitive, which I hate because it feels, you know, certainly not repetitive to that person's family. Um, but from a podcast standpoint, it could get repetitive. 95% of the time, you know, a dude grew up in racing, he won some awards, maybe set a couple records, then he lost control of his car, died of head injuries or burns. It, it's just, it, it is, they're all similar usually. Right. It's just the nature of the sport. Yeah. Um, I told the long form version of that Indian Weldon story two weeks ago, but there are so many more. And it was a challenge to figure out how to tell them without repeating the same basic details over and over and over again. So, um, we're going to do a larger number of shorter stories than I normally do for compilations, and we're going to zero in on what sets them apart or why I earmarked their name to delve into. Um, and we're going to kind of leave some of the basic scaffolding out because it's it's repetitive. Once you get the idea, you get the idea. So let's start with Bob Berman. 
Bob was born in Michigan in 1884. Old timey. Old timey. These are all older timey. Um, We'll have more modern ones next week because I like to do this stuff chronologically. Um, He was a Taurus. And if you'll please permit me a hyper-focused sidebar about that, if you will. You will. You have no choice. (laughs) Um, So... I have an unusual number of victims in this story with easily accessible birth dates, since it's technically just a bunch of semi-celebrity deaths. Right. Um, And as I'm, like, going through this thing, like, oh, people are going to hate me for this, (laughs) I'm also wondering if there's any pattern, because it's who I am. So I'm thinking it's going to be a shit ton of fire signs. It's going to be all Leo, Aries, Sagittarius, but I can't just look at drivers who've died, because is that skewing towards signs who are less good at racing or do it more dangerously or something, you know? Like, it's not just racers, it's dead racers. That's a whole different group. Right. So... I pulled up the list of the 2022 Indy 500 competitors, and I looked at each of their signs. <laughs> this is why I'm running late, probably. And I totally did not expect the outcome. Um, it is overwhelmingly Earth signs. Really? Yes, overwhelmingly Virgos and Capricorns. Like, there's a ridiculous pattern. I mean, double the number of Earth signs to the next most populated element. My little brother wanted to be a race car driver. He was a Capricorn. See? That's nuts. See? That's nuts. I know. I know. Um, Aquarius was oddly the only sign not represented whatsoever. <laughs> we are the only ones not in the 2022 Indy 500. But you're the um, ones talking about it. We are the ones talking about it. And I feel like there's some kind of lesson there. <laughs> I don't know what it is, though. Um, Capricorns and Virgos, though, absolutely dominating the Indy car scene. I don't know why that is. Anyway. In keeping with that pattern. Do you think they have, like, joint little birthday parties when they're kids? Oh, that would be so cute. Little, like, Like go-kart plays. Yeah, like little feature racers, race car drivers. Maybe. I love, maybe they do when they're big kids, too. When they're big boy racers, maybe they have joint birthday parties. And they have, like, a little race car cake. Do you remember those back in, like, the 90s? Like, the the big sheet cake with the little sheet cake, and then you put the little wheels on side, and it looked real funky. Oh, I bet Adelaide might like one of those for her next birthday. Okay, you're giving me ideas. (laughs) Um... Adelaide is, by the way, a Capricorn who is obsessed with cars and racing. Makes sense. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in keeping with that pattern, Bob was a Taurus. And in keeping with that theme, he was firmly planted in the soil of the racing world. Bob was one of the competitors who raced in the very first Indy 500 in 1911 when he was 25 years old, placing a respectable 19 out of 40. He also competed in the next four Indy 500s, placing 12th, 11th, 24th, and 6th. So he was a solid racer, despite his tendency to crash a lot, because according to one article, quote, he demanded more of steel than steel could give. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was known for wanting to get right back out onto the track without stopping to make repairs to his car necessarily, which occasionally led to conflict. Nicknamed Wild Bob, he had a major crash every couple years and was said to have broken every part of a car that could be broken at some point. I really dig it. (laughs) Figured you would. So, here's a sidebar. You remember Brakeman? Yes. Okay. Well, in the early days of racing, there was a similar role called a riding mechanic. They were used almost universally for the first 11 years of the Indy 500 and then randomly for another chunk of years in the 30s. The cars were two-seaters, and the second seat was for a mechanic who was usually of very slight build, who had several important but dangerous roles, including spotting, functioning as a human rearview mirror, manually pumping gas and oil, jumping out to repair the car if something went wrong, watching gauges, and apparently, quote, massaging the driver's hands. Aww. I know, right? Stick shifts and bucket seats. (laughs) Sorry. So... The role was gradually phased out, becoming pretty much extinct by the 40s when most cars were one-seaters, and it was officially removed in the 60s. But at the start of the 1916 season, Bob and his riding mechanic, Eric, were doing a road race in California when he experienced a rear tire blowout. His car rolled, killing both men, a nearby cop, and three audience members. Oh, man. Bob had a lot of well-connected friends, so two of them, racer Barney Oldfield and race car designer Harry Arminius Miller, collaborated to design a closed cockpit car called the Golden Submarine, with a roll cage to prevent this from happening again. 
Bob's death was the first on record for what is now known as IndyCar. Not that there hadn't obviously been deaths in motorsports before, but in this organization, which as we talked about last time, has been through a whole lot of different name changes. I am just continuously calling it IndyCar throughout this because I am not even pretending I can keep up with the IRL champ car. What was it? What year? It It's all the same thing. It just keeps doing this stuff. Right. So we're going to refer to it as IndyCar, but that was not necessarily um, what it was called at the time. Anyway, um, for the organization, Bob's death was the first one that I can find on record. Following his death, the Chicago... Chicago! Chicago! Go, car! Chicago! Chicago now! I'm cutting that. No, you're not. Chicago. bless it. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Following his death, the Chicago Tribune dropped this absolutely extra recounting of it, which... Frankly, sounds like something I would write. Quote, At the round table of the automotive drivers for whom death has waved the checkered flag, the spirits of David Bruce Brown, Spencer Wisehart, and Harry Grant have made room for another veteran. The wraith of Bob Berman has joined them. And then, in the literal next breath, it's talking shit. Quote, oh, Berman no. was not a successful driver, if you judge success by the number of victories a man scores, for he could count his triumphs and blue ribbon events on the fingers of one hand. He was a hero in the eyes of the automobile racing public, however, not because he won, but because he always tried to win, no matter how hopeless and great the odds against. What the fuck? Right? Like, old-timey newspapers With their were shade. the shade-throwingest motherfuckers I have ever heard in my life. An Aquarius um, wrote that. An Aquarius. <laughs> I swear. That's what we do. All you Earth signs get in the cars. An Aquarian sit here and write some extra shit about it. <laughs> that 100% tracks. So, next. Jimmy Murphy was a Virgo. Again, from California. We're two for two on the Earth signs so far. Born in 1894, so his career had him just a few years behind being one of Bob's contemporaries. Jimmy's parents had immigrated from Ireland before he was born and started a life and family in California. He lost his mom when he was three and his dad when he was 12, at which point he was raised by his uncle for another year and then a different aunt and an uncle who was the judge, quote, sent for him. And I swear to God, Melanie... Being sent for, the idea of distant relatives sending for you dominated my childhood. (sighs) I feel like it came up in every book I ever read. Like, your parents die, and then at some point some random relative will send for you, and you just have to pack up your shit and go start a new life. You know what I mean? Like, it's a whole-ass trope. Yes. Yeah. I didn't grow up with a dad, if you couldn't tell, I think it shows. And my mom... If the daddy issues aren't obvious, I don't know what to tell you guys. <laughs> I'll drag myself. It's fine. <laughs> uh, my mom had a major life-threatening medical situation when I was very young, um, but old enough to be aware and concerned. Right. So this was an absolutely omnipresent concept in my life. Like, quicksand, stop, drop, and roll, and rando relatives sending for you, same category for me. <laughs> Things that I 100% thought were coming You know me. what? Just a, just a sidebar, because you gave the <laughs> list about the, the quicksand and how that seemed like such a big deal when we were younger. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the whole um, dry drowning thing? Oh, that's been... Yeah. And how that is kind of like quicksand, like it's basically a myth. Really? Yes. Okay, see, no, I I am familiar with dry drowning because I feel like in, I don't know if it's when I became aware of it or just when it was like really kind of all over the news and scary. It was people. everywhere. Well, like when Adelaide was maybe a toddler, everywhere. It was like, well, you know, take your kid to the pool. Good luck. They're going to drown in their sleep tonight. Like it fucking haunted me yeah so like the dry drowning is almost always followed by like an actual near drowning attempt not because they get like water and stuff up their nose so i haven't told cody that they'll probably make him feel better about the whole amoeba stuff too please do because that does make me feel better i have um lived in terror of that for my child's pretty much entire life yeah look it up so apparently you know it has to it's Almost always following a, like, near drowning 
situation. Not because your oh kids. God for that. Because I was the same way. Like I think about any time my kids out in the water, or the lake. Yeah, yeah. It's the they first thing take I think out about. a little bit of water and start coughing. I mean, not a whole ass near drowning, but you know, they get some water in their mouth and start sputtering, and you're like, oh shit. Then you're in there looking at them every hour all night, checking to see if they've dry drowned. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So add that to your quick sand. Okay. Stop, drop, well, and roll. Thank you. And random relative sending for you. Yep. Okay. So. Indeed, um, you will end up with some weird, unexpected trajectories in your life when you get sent for, which is how Jimmy ended up riding a motorcycle to and from school when his judge uncle gave him one. That's so cool. Right? Like, what a badass. He must have had a good time with the girls, I'm thinking. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Jimmy took to this like a duck to water, and he poured all of his time and energy into mastering riding and repairing motorcycles until he eventually dropped out of high school right before graduation and opened a pretty successful garage, uh, fixing motorcycles and then cars. He broke into automobile racing as a riding mechanic, like what we were just talking about above, very literally rubbing elbows with some of the top names in racing until he eventually got in on the action himself in the very early 20s, and he was an immediate success. Mussolini was so excited that he gave him two German Shepherds, and no one loves German Shepherds more than I do, but wow, now I understand why everyone hates Mussolini, because that is a terrible present. He was invited to drive on a dirt track in 1924 on his 30th birthday. He didn't have a whole lot of experience driving on dirt tracks. It's literally a dirty 30. A dirt. Oh, God, I hope he made some kind of joke about that. How do you not? I bet he didn't. And then he got his car cake. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bless. I wish that was how this ended. (laughs) Um, So it was being promoted by his friend. So he said yes. Um, with 12 laps left to go in a 150 lap race, he lost control of his car, leading to it sliding sideways and through a wooden rail, which impaled him through the chest. Oh, yeah. Um, higher up in the organization said during his eulogy, quote, sportsmanship, like every other moral quality is not instinctive. It must be acquired. Jimmy Murphy, as no other, possessed the quality of a 100% sportsman. Invariably, when he won, he attributed his success to the goddess of fortune. He carried his honors more blithely than any other man I've ever come in contact with in my 30 years as an official. He accepted victory without a sneer or a strut and defeat without a whimper. He was one in a million. Mm. Yeah. So, as far as the next one... I do want to know that if I ever find myself in some bizarre alternate reality where I need to name a baby, which isn't going to happen unless one appears on my doorstep because I'm not having it anymore. (laughs) Um, But if that ever happens and it's a boy, I will without a doubt be turning to lists of IndyCar drivers from the early 1900s because the names are without exception fucking iconic. (laughs) Okay, I have a short sampling. Give it to me. Give it to me. Of examples. Okay, it's fu- it makes me want to have a baby, and I don't even want to have a baby. <laughs> Frank Fox. Ooh. Howdy Wilcox. Howdy Wilcox? Mm-hmm. I got married. I say that by to my husband. Named Howdy. Oh, no. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh, yes. Don't be sorry. I love that. Oh, my God. Jack Peacock. <laughs> Gaston Chevrolet. Cannonball Baker. To be fair, I think Cannonball's a nickname, but I he's always referred to as Cannonball. Still love it. Harry Hearts. <laughs> Deacon Litz. Babe Stop. Um, I say that too. I know, right? You say howdy, Wilcox, and then five minutes later you say, Babe, stop. I'm tired. I'm go bad. And the subject of this piece of the story, Rex Mays Jr. I like who that. was born? I know, right? Who was born a Pisces of all things in California in 1913? He married his wife Dorothy when he was 20, and they had two children. And Rex was like ridiculously handsome. He looked like a hair product commercial with an amazing smile. Send Not me a that- picture. Okay, hold on. I will right now because, like, I'm. So gay. And I still think he's so handsome. <laughs> I mean, really, maybe I'd just like a girl that looked the exact same way, but I don't know. He's a cutie pie. I'll send it to you momentarily. 
Oh, he's cute. Right? Handsome devil. My goodness. So, not only that, but he was genuinely a good guy. The Motorsports Hall of Fame writes, quote, As a racer, Rex Mays was tougher than his cars. As a person, he enjoyed the reputation of being a fair, honest, and gracious man, end quote. You know, you can kind of get that vibe just off that picture alone. I agree completely. Like, he looks like a good dude who would kick ass on the track. <laughs> Um, so he was a solid racer. He was tending to finish near the front of the pack. One driver who competed against him said, quote, he wouldn't let up and I knew he never would. I had the faster car, but one of us was bound to make a mistake. I knew it wouldn't be Mays. I had to let his car beat him. Because the only way that, right. it, yeah, it wasn't going to be him. It was just his car. Um, the Speedway president at the time said, quote, Rex Mays is the man who will tame that car. Rex is the complete driver, and the only thing that can keep him from winning this race is the car. If that car is worthy of him, then it is the first one. Indy 500s have been paused twice, two years for World War One and four years for World War Two, And Rex's career took a hit because of it, because he was kind of in his heyday at that point, and things got paused for four years. Um, but he jumped right back in when things reopened in 1946. Now, I love this story so much. Rex had a racing buddy named Duke Dinsmore. Rex oh. and Duke. What a pair of pals, am I right? Right. <laughs> and in an interview, Duke had a lot to say about his contemporary regarding what makes Rex so good. Quote, what? Simply this. Good reflexes and unusual eyesight. He's 2015 in both eyes. Me? Well, I'm 2020. That's perfect as far as Uncle Sam was concerned when he was cutting out the boys for the Air Force. But Rex isn't just normal like most of the other drivers. He's 2015. And that gives him a terrific edge. A terrific edge. He has everything. Everything Ted Horn has and a bit more. It's that bit more, that extra of everything that makes him the hot driver that he is and has been since he first took the tracks of the Pacific Coast some 18 years ago. So that's just what Duke's got off the top of his head to a reporter about Rex, and I'll be damned if that doesn't sound exactly like me talking about my girlfriend. Yeah. I was just going to say. <laughs> she has everything and a bit more. It's that extra of everything that makes him a hot driver <laughs> than she is. Like, tell me that's not me. Um, so Duke may have had some other reasons for his particular affection for Rex. I'm not going where you think I am with this, guys. Uh, in 1948, Duke and Rex were both doing a race in Milwaukee with Rex leading. Duke crashed and was ejected from his car and onto the track, fracturing his arm, shoulder, and skull. Rex came around the corner, driving, of course, came upon his body and intentionally spun his car out into a wall forfeiting his lead and scrambling out to drag Duke to a safer location. Then stood in a very dangerous location in dust almost too thick to see, directing cars around Duke. That, that is... I mean, part of me is like, well, obviously you shouldn't leave your friend laying in the road to fucking die. Right. But they have people for that. Like, that's somebody's job. But that's his best buddy. You don't have to wreck your car and do it yourself. (laughs) Um, but he did, and then he stood there and well, would, traffic. Okay, wait a minute. Is if you intentionally stop, is there some sort of like disqualification? Like, I, is it didn't it, benefit him at all? Okay, no. he just wanted to wreck that shit. <laughs> no, he he did not get anything out of this, and he was in the lead. Um, it was such a big deal that the race was known as the Rex Mays Classic from 1950 to 1987. But we're not here for feel-good stories, are we? Uh-uh. No, we're here because we're horrible ghouls. And the following year, I actually hate this part of the story. I wish we could just leave it at the first half because I love the first half. Um, the following year, Rex competed in a champ car race in California where he lost control of his car, trying to avoid becoming part of an accident ahead of him, flipped and was ejected out of his car onto the track. And was run over by two other drivers in front of a crowd of 20,000 people. Wow. Killing him at 36 years old, leaving behind his wife and 10-year-old Rex III and 4-year-old Sue. His death led to seatbelts becoming mandatory in race cars. And you really, like, you can't say that the sport doesn't learn from its mistakes because a lot, like, a lot of these end with new safety measures being put in place that are still in place to this day. Which is fascinating to me because there's a lot of sports that 
Don't uh-huh. do that. Um, yeah, the, we're going to address that a little bit later. <laughs> um, so this next one is brief, but it involves a really unusual detail. So I did want to include it. Carl Scarborough, a cancer born in Illinois in 1914. He moved to Michigan, got married, started a family, three kids. All in all, like the first half of the 1900s were just not the time to be doing this because a lot of really bad stuff was going on. There was a little aside on his Wikipedia page about the mortality rate among his cohort. So I dug into that a little bit and oh my God. Apparently at one point they weren't getting enough experienced drivers showing up at qualifying. So they started letting rookies in willy nilly. Oh, and that, yeah. And that is why when Carl placed 18th in the 1953 Indy 500, 11 out of the 33 other drivers in the race were dead within four years of it. Holy shit. That is uh-huh. terrifying. A third. Mostly from racing accidents. Yeah. Like, holy shit. So, 1953 Indy 500. Already kind of a shadow cast over this event. Chet Miller had crashed his car into a wall head-on during practice two weeks before, but the race had to go on. And Chet Miller died, by the way. <laughs> I guess I didn't clarify right. that. Um, but the race had to go on. It was hot as shit. Not long, which, I, you know, I mean, I guess in modern times we probably wouldn't need to think about that, but I've never really thought about that being a factor. Um, not long into the race, Carl started to not feel good. The cars were poorly ventilated and the heat was getting to him. He mentioned it during a pit stop and then he got back into the car and continued the race. Oh my God. Is he gonna, is he having a heat stroke while he's racing? Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Nine other drivers had gotten sick in the 91 degree heat working on top of a 130 degree track in enclosed cars. A little bit of gas got spilled on the side of Carl's car during the stop, and it led to a small fire that necessitated another stop. I don't think the fire itself was a huge deal or necessarily even the cause of what happened. Uh, That time, Carl climbed out of his car over the pit wall and collapsed. He was too hot to continue, so he was replaced with another driver whose car was having issues since, you know, like we've got a good car with a tapped out driver and a good driver with a tapped out car. So they just did a little switcheroo there. Carl was taken to the track's medical facility because, yes, it has one. It still does. Called IU Health Infield Care Center. I don't know the stats on that place at the time, but today it is staffed with a team of over 150. And it starts treating fans, crew, and drivers at 6 a.m. for the Indy 500. And they say they are busier than an ER and able to treat many acute emergencies. That's Um. fascinating. Isn't it? I thought so, too. I mean, I've lived here most of my life, and I I never knew. And I've been to the Indy 500, and I never knew that was a thing. That's one of the things that I love about our podcast is... Me, too. When you find <laughs> these little hidden gems where you wouldn't... You would never know, you know, no. if something like that. Um, yeah. But it, you know, doing this and researching, you find these cool little nuggets of information. And then, like, I'm going to go in a couple weeks, and I'm going to be like, huh, you people have a whole ass hospital here, and I know about it. You should see if you could, like, go. Get sick. Not get get a Band-Aid or something and report. <laughs> we need boots on the ground, Brianne. Boots on the ground. Band-Aid for $700, but I'll see what I could do. Yeah. Do you know how bad you're going to feel if something bad happens to me? You jinxed me. No, a Band-Aid. Okay. You you're got, jinxing me for a Band-Aid on the record? You got a paper cut with your ticket. Do they even have physical forms of tickets anymore? I, I don't know. No. Um, I'll let you know. Um, but that's that's something that's it's not... A terrible injury. It's more annoying than anything, and you have to lay yeah. off the lemons for a couple days. <laughs> but a band aid. We need boots on the ground. You need to go investigate. Listen, you're press now, babe. You're for science. I will do. You're a journalist. Give me a press badge. Okay. <laughs> I bet you could get one. I bet I could. So they can treat a lot, but they couldn't treat Carl, who was admitted with a body temperature of 104. The situation was so dire that they did the only thing they could, which was to crack open his chest to massage his heart into beating again. But it didn't work, and he was declared dead. And I'm just like, holy shit, like, this is a kind of a field medicine situation in the 50s. Right. And they just cut this guy's chest open. Holy, it must have been bad. Yeah. Um. He he was declared dead. The race continued, and another driver fainted while driving from the heat and crashed into a wall. But that one survived. 
after Carl's death, uh, they changed the rules to require better ventilation in the cars. So this next one made the cut pretty much because I'm a ghoul. Uh, Bill Vukovich, probably saying that wrong, a Fresno, California born Sagittarius, which does fit the stereotype. He grew up in, he grew up during the depression in an immigrant family with seven siblings. And at that time with the depression, there wasn't much to do other than drive the family car, a model T through fields. Bill got his competitive start driving midget cars on dirt tracks, a sport considered too dangerous to attempt by a lot of IndyCar drivers, which is probably part of the reason he was nicknamed the Mad Russian, despite being not Russian. <laughs> he also <laughs> went by Vuki, or the Silent Serb, due to his personality and ancestry. He was Serbian, not Russian. Um he did say some things, though. He wasn't completely silent, including, quote, the only way to win here is to keep your foot on the throttle and turn left, which I do think is kind of an interesting statement as far as the whole oval versus road course drama. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I could see why you would want there to be more to it than that. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm way too new to this to have an opinion on that. But I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a disheartening way to put it, I feel like. Um, when one of his brothers also got into racing, he warned him, quote, don't tangle with me. Out on the track, you're just another driver. Wow. Is it older yeah. or younger brother? I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely, well, I was going to say it's got older brother energy, yeah. but I don't even know. Um, Vuki was diehard about midget racing. He didn't really want to do anything else, but the sport was declining and a ride in an IndyCar sold him on it. So he took all of his grit and intensity, packed it up and moved over to IndyCar. He started five Indy 500s coming in 29th in his first attempt, which probably would have been better if his steering hadn't fucked up after leading for 150 laps. He improved it to 17th for his second, and and then he won back-to-back in 1953 and 1954. He was probably hyped to attempt a triple consecutive victory when he qualified again in 1955, but it does seem like he had a bad feeling about it. He told someone a week before that he didn't think he'd finish. The silent Serb didn't typically call his wife Esther before races, but this time he did, asking for her ETA at the track. 57 laps in, things were going great for Vuki, who was maintaining a 17-second lead. Um, That's a a quarter of the w- that seems right? like a lot. I think so, too. About a quarter of the way through the race, I mean, anything could still happen, but a 17-second lead from a driver who won the last two 500s is nothing to sneeze at. Right. As he made his way out of a turn, a car in front of him hit a wall, flipped, and landed in the middle of the track. Another car swerved to avoid the flipped car, but didn't manage to, hitting another car in the process and leaving three crash cars in Vuki's path. He hit it, became airborne, smashed into a bridge cockpit first, and, quote, cartwheeled through the air multiple times, landing on top of a group of parked cars before coming to rest upside down and bursting into flames, end quote. Wow. Two spectators inside the car that had been landed on were injured. Similarly to Rex and Duke's story, a driver who would have still been in the running stopped his own car and ran to help him out of his flame-engulfed car, but it was too late. It wouldn't be until the 80s that it would become standard not to declare anyone dead on the tracks unless they were fully incinerated or decapitated, but I think that common sense would always probably dictate things with the latter. Um, Wait, what? Yeah, they can't be declared dead on the track unless they are completely incinerated or decapitated. I mean, are these Disney rules? I don't understand. (laughs) I feel like the incinerated could be a slippery slope. Like, I mean, they're obviously not going to be incinerated like a crematorium incinerated. Right. And I mean, burns can be unbelievably horrific and survivable. So I don't, I would like to know more about that. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess you could call it if they're decapitated on the track. Um... So when his cockpit hit that bridge, he had been partially decapitated, and he was probably dead before the car landed. To this day, his record stands as the only driver to spend three consecutive Indy 500s leading a majority of the race, even though he was killed in his final attempt. He left behind Esther and their two kids, 13-year-old Marlene and 11-year-old Billy. Billy Jr. went on to get involved in racing, and then he had a son, Billy III, who also did and was killed in a racing accident like his grandfather. Oh, that's horrific. Yeah. Um, so this is another one that 
is brief, but I had a reason for including it. Uh, almost every single fatality, you see a safety feature that is just integral to modern racing becoming a thing. Like everything from roll cages to helmets to seatbelts to ventilation. Things that we see as a given today tended to originate from an IndyCar fatality, and most sports cannot say that. Like, if we saw the NFL making real-time safety improvements every time something serious happened, football would be a very different sport. Right. Racing really does learn lessons and incorporate them pretty much immediately. And I bet that part of that, I'm just, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm off script and speculating at this point, but I feel like... Part of that could be the fact that there are a lot of designers involved. So there's a lot of sort of ingenuity as far as people who have the ability and motivation and financial incentive to actually design things that people are then going to spend money on. Right. Um, which, I mean, may not be the case in certain sports, but I I think it's commendable. Um, and this is another one where there's not a whole lot to the story, but it did lead to a major change as far as that. So I do want to touch on this one. We love a major change. We love a major change. Love to see it. Jeremy Unser Jr., a Scorpio from Colorado Springs, born in 1932. He married a woman named Jean, and Jeremy and Jean went the matchy-matchy route, naming their kids Jerry and Johnny. As with a lot of these guys, he came from a racing family, but at the time of our story, none of his relatives had yet made it to the Indy 500. He was the first, but it wasn't going to go smoothly. He started in 1958, but in a pileup nearly the size of the one that killed Dan Weldon, 13 cars collided in the very first lap, including Jeremy's, which went airborne and flew over a wall. He was lucky and he walked away from it with no injuries other than to his pride and hopes of doing more than a single lap. In the right, right. Can you imagine? That's a you, bummer. You're out in the first lap. Like, that sucks. So he tried again the following year, and in the second day of qualifying, things once again went sideways. That time, quote, the car hit the wall after spinning, then went end over end down the front straightaway, leaving behind a trail of parts. The car burst into flames as a result. Track officials estimated his speed just before the accident to be about 133 miles per hour. End quote. Now, if you've ever watched a video of a racing accident, you know how fast first responders get there, like almost before the cars come to a stop. Right, right. And when they did, it was burning, but Jeremy was alert and speaking. Specifically, he was screaming, my legs are on fire, call my wife. But no one could do anything about that until the car itself was extinguished. He was taken to the hospital, which, okay, I got to talk to you about this real quick. This is a whole sidebar that is not part of the script. Okay. Um, reading all these, because I think almost most of the ones that I've been reading about were in Indy. It is so fucking surreal how I've been to all the hospitals. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, right? It's like he was taken to Methodist IU, and I'm like, I went there when I had MRSA in my knee. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, whatever. And they're all, it, it's so weird. Because there's, you know, they're name dropping hospitals in every one of these. And I'm like, I've been there. <laughs> I did this there. I did that there. And I never even think about that. Never even think about that. That must be an interesting time to be an ED nurse. Or physician or something. I don't know. Anyway. Um, so he was taken to the hospital, a hospital I've been to before, with severe injuries. Quote, he had a broken neck and third degree burns over both legs and one arm. In critical condition, he suffered burns over 35% of his body and was in a coma. End quote. He died after two weeks in the hospital. And his death is why the fire-resistant racing suits that are so ubiquitous today became mandatory. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> I'm yeah. learning so much. I'm like, I, I need to. I, I love hate this episode. <laughs> okay, after I finish this, I'm going to the store. Actually, I may have some here. I'm going either to a drawer or a store. I don't know. And I'm getting a pack of index cards, and I'm going to be deep diving into everyone in the Indy 500. I want their backgrounds. I want their family racing history. I want their previous results. I want their personal sob stories. And I'm going to be invested in these people by the 500. <laughs> That's like me with the Derby. Yes. You know? And I, there will be flashcards and it's going to be a thing. And that's going to be as soon as I'm done editing. <laughs> I love it so much. 
So last for part one of our compilation is a doozy. It is Gordon Smiley, another baller name. A Taurus who was born in Nebraska in 1946, same year as like every single one of my grandparents. Gordon would have made Randy Bernard proud because he was one hell of a versatile, well-rounded driver. He started racing professionally at 19, and he competed in no fewer than six different series, not only winning, but setting new records in every single one. He qualified for the Indy 500 in 1980 and came in 25th after his turbocharger somehow stopped turbocharging. I don't know. (laughs) It it was a turbocharger issue. I don't know how that works. Um, He entered again in 1981, crashed, and ended up in 22nd, but without any major injuries. So, of course, he went for it again in 1982. Now, huge-ass sidebar about Gordon Smiley. Well, not about Gordon Smiley. So... Okay, this is a story nested within a story here. This is a this is a bogo. <laughs> um, the Wikipedia page for Gordon Smiley mentions that his accident in his second race set up the controversial finish between Mario Andretti, who's racing royalty, as I'm sure we all know, right. and Bobby Unser. And I'm like, wait a minute, I know that name <laughs> because I just literally typed it one paragraph ago when we were talking about Jerry Unser, the guy who asked for his wife while his legs were on fire. So, naturally, I skippity doo my ass down that rabbit hole, and I would be remiss to not tell you about this tea. 1981. We get picture. racing tea? Oh, my God, yes. I love it. <laughs> this is the pettiest shit I've ever heard, and I want to know every petty thing that's ever happened in IndyCar in the past, uh, what, 112 years or something now? See, this, this is this is what we talk about when we say... Send us your tea. Send us your drama for disaster potluck. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, oh, not at all. If you get into racing tea, oh my god. Okay, we already did Olympic diving tea. Come on, guys. Okay, 1981. Picture it: Mario Andretti and Bobby Unser, who is Jerry's brother, were best friends. Okay. The Indie Star describes Bobby as America's racing prom king, and even outsiders know who Mario Andretti is. They were thick as thieves. In the 149th lap of 200 at the 500, both men were in their final pit stop. They pulled out together, and apparently Bobby did some shady shit, pulling an illegal move to pass between 8 and 11 cars, depending on your source. It would be above my pay grade to explain exactly what rule he broke and how and why, but apparently he broke one. Mario said, quote, I watched Bobby pull out of the pits and just accelerate to the front right in front of the pace car. I'm screaming to my guy on the radio, what the hell's going on? Bobby went right up with the pace car. The announcers watching the race said, quote, wait a minute, Unser can't do that. That was apparently a big ass no-no, like a whole bouquet of whoopsie daisies. So you better believe that when Bobby won the race, the entire 500, Mario was not having it. No, no. Friend or not. No, Bobby had unofficially won, but just for the record, though, if that was us, I would let you just have it. Oh, thank you. Same. (laughs) But you would be, we would have to, like, split the prize money. Something like that. You know what I mean? Like, you can give me some kind of private reparations for that bullshit, but I would not try to dethrone you in front of everyone. So they were friends, but apparently not as good of friends as us. Good. Um, They were best friends, though. We're best friends. We're best friends forever, Melanie. They were BFs, not BFFs. It's an important F. Critical, actually. So Bobby had unofficially won, but they don't call the winner officially, officially the same day because they have to like look back over the tapes and be sure. In the morning, officials announced that Mario had won and took Mario's winner's photo. Because Mario is second? Uh Uh-huh. And they said that Bobby had cheated or, you know, broken around. Maybe not cheated. I don't know, but broken a rule. So they're like, Mario, you're the winner. They took his winner's photo and they gave him the championship ring for the 1981 race. And Bobby wasn't having that. So this kicked off a five-month-long court battle that ended up with Bobby being renamed the winner. (gasps) Uh Uh-huh. But fined 40 grand, which would be $133,000 in today's money. (gasps) Uh Uh-huh. They told Mario to return the ring, and he pretty much told them to go fuck themselves in as many words. Right? Not only would he not return it, but he continued to wear it out of spite almost daily for at least the next 38 
years. <laughs> and that's from an article from four years ago. So presumably he still is. <laughs> Saying it was a matter of principle because he knows he won. However, get ready for this. Bobby was given what he says was, quote, a prettier ring, which he also <laughs> wears. They both wear championship rings. Can you even? A prettier ring? A prettier ring, in his words. Oh, Mario was still fighting mad about this when the 1982 season rolled around. Listen, they both got rings. Just call (laughs) off the feud already. You're both winners. It never got called off. Oh, so Mario is still super pissed when the 1982 season came. And according to Indy Star, quote, at the 1982 pre-race drivers meeting, Andretti stood to ask race steward Tom Binford a question. Just to get it straight, any rule changes from last year, he said? <laughs> Binford replied that there were not any. So hypothetically, if I pass 11 cars coming out of a yellow flag from the pits, the fine is still 40000 Andretti said. No, Binford replied, according to Andretti. So the rule book applied that year, but not in 1981, Andretti says. That's the farce. <gasps> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Unsurprisingly, their friendship did not survive. Although Mario maintains that he was mostly upset with the USAC for the shady ruling more so than Bobby for doing it. Although he did take issue with Bobby refusing to admit even privately that what he'd done was shady. Oh, anyway, <laughs> that is some juicy tea, right? That is piping hot tea. And I'm so honored to pour it for you. So all that to bring us back to Gordon Smiley, whose 1981 crash set the stage for that four-decade running controversy. So Gordon was a solid and versatile racer whose Indy 500 runs kept getting waylaid by mechanical issues and crashes, and he was trying to get in again for 1982. Coming around to turn in qualifying, he lost control at 200 miles per hour and flew into a wall. His entire chassis, quote, disintegrated, and his fuel tank exploded, Sending everything, including Gordon himself, into the catch fence, which, if we know anything by now, is never good. The catch fence ends up acting like a cheese grater when it's hit at those speeds. Right. The catch fence threw all of those things back onto the track everywhere. And the track's medical director said in his book that I urgently need to read all of. Rapid response, my inside story is a motor racing lifesaver. Like, I will pass the fuck away if I don't get that book, like, this week. Right. Um, quote, during an attempt to qualify for the Indy 500, Gordon Smiley, a cocky young driver from Texas, was determined to break 200 miles per hour or die trying. Several veteran drivers had warned him that he was in way over his head, driving all wrong for the speedway. Smiley was a road racer and was used to counter steering his car to avoid a crash if the rear wheels broke traction. While rushing to the car. Okay, check your content warnings because this is in the top five goriest things I've ever described. (laughs) This is worse than the car wash. Um, while rushing to the car, I noticed small splotches of a peculiar gray substance marking a trail in the asphalt leading up to the driver. When I reached the car, I was shocked to see that Smiley's helmet was gone along with the top of his skull. He had essentially been scalped by the debris fence. The material on the racetrack was most of his brain. His helmet due to massive centrifugal force was literally pulled from his head on impact. I rode to the care center with the body. On the way in, I performed a cursory examination and realized that nearly every bone in his body was shattered. He had a gaping wound in his side that looked as if he'd been attacked by a large shark. I had never seen such trauma. End quote. Oh. Gordon's wife, Barbara, attended the 1982 500 that Gordon had been trying to qualify for, but she did not clap, saying, quote, there was only one person I ever rooted for. Oh. And that's where I'll leave you this week. Oh, that was <laughs> that was rough. It was good, but it was rough. I know. I know. Believe me, I know. Oh, I am jazzed about racing. <laughs> me too. And I feel Did I just real ghouly saying that right now. But inadvertently, like, pick up a new hobby? See, that's what I was thinking when you were telling me about the derby stuff the other day. Where- and I'm like, wow, I have the the weirdest sporting interests because if you like bundle up the things that are sports or sports adjacent that i'm interested in it is fucking um olympic diving competitive dog sports and maybe indycar well why not football why not basketball like i'm a lesbian we've got a WNBA. maybe maybe 
I'll work on you a little bit. I think I could be brought around to the derby thing for sure. We'll see. Like, I'm very open to picking that up, but I need some time to focus on IndyCar right now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, send me all the IndyCar stuff, too. Maybe I'll maybe I'll watch. Please do. I'll send you my flashcards. We'll have, like, a racing sub-horrible ghoul gro- group. <laughs> Bet. <laughs> Bet. Oh, my God. I want to find out who else is interested in this. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, after that nightmare, I think we need some disaster relief. We sure do. You go first. My voice is tired. Aww. <laughs> My voice is prettier. It's beautiful. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, while I was waiting today to record, I finished my Lego set. It's gorgeous. I have the star. I knew you were going to talk about that as soon as you posted. I was like, this is going to be disaster relief. So I have to um, clear a like five minute space of yes, we can talk about Mother's Day from my brain. And this is it. No, I don't want to get totally into it. I specifically, you know, I made my post. I shared my love on the page. Um, I just want to talk about the set for a moment. It is so fucking cool. I got the Vincent Van Gogh Starry Night Lego set. And it's set up, I just finished it, it's in a picture frame. Like, the frame is Lego. And there is a wall mount that you can, like, hang it up on your wall that's made out of Lego. So you can hang this whole piece up on the wall. That is gorgeous. It is so cool. Have you posted it in the ghouls group yet? Not the fit. um, No, I think I just made a post on my personal page. I'll post it. It is so cool. It's so intricate. Um, I kind of felt a little bad not including the kids and letting them build, but it's been a long time since I had one. Um, but I did let them help me with the moon just a little bit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it took me, I spent maybe two days on this thing total and uh, it's really cool and I really love it and I want more Lego. I wish they would do a whole artist series. I kind of figured that they were. Are they not? Is that like the only one? That's the only one that I've found. Wow. So. Okay. Well, it's gorgeous. Thank you. What's yours? Um, I'm going to keep mine super simple. I have, after 35 years on this earth, finally landed on a Starbucks order. <laughs> What is it? Never been a Starbucks person. Um, what so fucking ever. I only drank apple cider from there for ever. Um, but my girlfriend and my kid are both huge Starbucks people. So now I am in Starbucks drive throughs more often than I ever meant to be in my life. And um, caramel ribbon crunch frappuccino. Okay, that's my favorite. Really? Yes. That's oh I get that every time. I'm not a big Starbucks Nuh-uh. person either. But I get that when I go to get gift cards for like teacher appreciation, because that's usually the only time I go. Yeah. But I always get that same thing. Yeah. Well, my girlfriend ordered one one time and I was like, she had me drinking some pistachio thing for a while. It was pretty good. Like it was like if she was getting something and I wanted something to do with my hands, yeah, I'll drink it. But you know, <laughs> I'm not going to go on my own time and buy it. Um, but yeah, no, then she got me one of these one time. Did, you, did and- you just say if I wanted something to do with my hands? I have anxiety, Melanie. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm in some kind of slightly anxious scenario, yes, I would like to have a drink in my hand just to have something to fidget with. Okay. Um, Yeah. No. That's what she said. It's amazing. It's got crunch on top. And I, oh, God, I am, I don't know who I am anymore. (laughs) I have the Starbucks app on my phone now. I keep money loaded on the car. What? On the card. Oh, what am I doing? My gosh, that's amazing. You're a Starbucks though? girl now. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm dating one and I'm raising one. So I guess if you can't beat them, join them. Join them. Yeah. Well, well we do have a couple of Patreons um, that we need to shout out. And of course, if I mispronounce your name, just let me know and I will repeat it because it's our fucking podcast. We can do that. <laughs> We can. We can do anything we want. So today we have Mars Hilton, which is, I mean, that's such a cool name. And your buddy is Darian. Here we go. Darian. (laughs) 
Libran, Libran, L-Y-B-R-A-N-D. I like it. I love it. You two are buddies. Go donate food. Go donate blood. Go, go the kidney. I said kidney. I said that all backwards. It's fine. And make sure that you're an organ donor. Yes. I mean, unless you really don't want to be. But if you are and you just haven't made it happen, make sure you are. Yes, for sure. Go watch yeah. an indie race together. Yes. And then meditate on organ donation. I don't know. <laughs> it feels like there's a connection there, maybe. Thank you so much for your support. And uh, until next time, sweet dreams, sweet dreams or no dreams. dreams. Hey, Horrible Ghouls. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to share your personal MarkSafe moment, you can send it to us at MarkSafePodcast at gmail.com. Please give our podcast a rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your buddies about us, too. That goes a long way. If you want to further elevate your support, check out our MarkSafe Patreon page, where we have shoutouts, goodies, and some bonus content in the works. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again, and as always, stay safe.